morning, everyone. Uh, we're recording this podcast on Monday, the 23rd of March. I'm Helen Watson, the CEO of Rothschild & Co's Wealth Management Business in the UK. And I'm joined this morning by Kevin Gardner, our Global Investment Strategist, and Hugo Capel-Cure, who's one of the co-heads of our portfolio management team in London. Firstly, I wanted just to reassure you that we have followed government advice and the vast majority of the team are working from home. Everything is working well and uh, we will continue to work on your behalf as normally as possible. I hope you and your families are all keeping well and we thought it would be helpful to give you an update both on the bigger picture but also on how the portfolios are faring in this environment. So firstly, Kevin, I'd like to hand over to you for a sort of bigger picture. We are all in different places so please bear with us. We'll try not to interrupt each other. Um, but Kevin, perhaps if you could give us your, your thoughts to kick us off, that would be great. Thanks, Helen, and good morning from me. And uh, the initial point to make, obviously, is that we're all still watching a situation which is evolving very, uh, very quickly and very dramatically. And we're in uh, conditions economically that I don't think we've ever seen before. It's not uh, been the case that I can remember reading about even a situation in which governments have deliberately engineered a significant shutdown of much of the global economy in response to a healthcare crisis. So we're all watching and learning, as it were. That said, markets often move in a very volatile fashion, and it seems to me that they're probably a little bit more volatile even than the admittedly serious situation that we're in at the moment would seem to, uh, to warrant longer term, but we'll come back to that maybe. Firstly, let me just offer a quick uh, update, if I may, in terms of what has been going on so far. As we're speaking, the global stock market is trying to find some sort of bottom. It's not managed yet. I think markets uh, are at the lowest points that we've seen for the episode to date. We're down by roughly one third year to date and a little bit more from the high point seen in back in early February. And one of the striking things about global stock markets is that the moves are remarkably similar across the piece. You know, some regions have fared better and worse than others. So emerging Asia, paradoxically, is one of the least damaged stock markets. Emerging markets in Latin America are the most damaged sector-wise. The energy sector has been positively hit for six, uh, whereas consumer staples have declined by much less. But the thing that strikes me most is that actually many regions and sectors have been hit by a similar order of magnitude here. So there are very few places in which to hide from this. Uh, one of the exceptions is outside the stock market in government bonds which are managing to hold on to, uh, to gains, but not the credit markets. Corporate bonds, even investment grade corporate bonds have been struggling and are being hit also by a shortage of liquidity in markets. It's not just the price movements that market participants are fretting about, it's the ease with which they can transact in those markets. Currency wise, as we might have expected, the dollar has remained pretty firm. The pound is probably the weakest of the biggest currencies. In commodity markets, gold has not been much of a safe haven so far. And uh, the oil market, of course, has been hit for six uh, with oil prices in the low 20s in terms of dollars per barrel compared to 60 and the not too distant uh, past. So markets are still trying to find some sort of flaw here. In terms of the illness itself, contagion in the West is still spreading exponentially. If you look at the charts that the World Health Organization is preparing, you'll see that uh, the rate of contagion is still rising at a pretty vertical pace in some of those, uh, those charts. I don't think that's a surprise. I think we 
have always expected to be in this phase for a while yet. And personally, I'm not expecting to see contagion rates slow until perhaps another week, 10 days or thereabouts. And I'm simply applying the sort of time scale that might be relevant if the experience of China is anything to go by in this uh, respect. In terms of the number of cases, we're up at about 330, 340,000, with about 12,000 recorded fatalities as yet. In terms of government responses to this, as I mentioned right at the beginning, the scale of the response has been dramatic and unprecedented. And the economic damage which is being done, of course, is a deliberate policy on the part of government. They're trying to stop people from meeting and doing business to tackle this, the spread of the virus. Again, the situation is very fluid. As we're speaking, the possibility of a lockdown in London is being mooted and taken a little bit more seriously after the Prime Minister's comments about what we all didn't do as we should have at the weekend. So the possibility of spreading constraints on travel is out there. We're seeing government thinking very much on its feet and extending support packages to be delivered by local authorities to the one and a half million people who are encouraged to stay at home now already for, for the next few months. But these sorts of responses, the fiscal measures, the monetary measures, as I say, they're essentially palliative responses because the government is not trying to make the economy function as usual. It's trying to limit the damage being done as it closes down much of the economy to tackle the spread of the, the illness. The thing that strikes me, and you can see this increasingly in some of the media commentary, is that the costs of this response themselves are not negligible, stating the obvious, they're huge. And I'm not sure whether the government has yet been able to think through fully the extent to which those costs are warranted relative to the undoubted horrible costs that would have been incurred had we allowed the illness to uh, to run closer to its uh, course. So I think the debate is beginning to move on a little bit there. And I mention that because that's very relevant to the expected duration of these measures. Uh, the government at the moment is talking very much as if it may want these measures to last for quite some time, but its ability to enforce the sorts of lockdowns and shutdowns that we're seeing must be questionable. And uh, looking forwards, when we talk about the economic response in a second, that's one of my reasons for thinking that uh, it's still premature to be translating the undoubted short-term damage into something which lasts for a longer, a longer time. But moving on to that economic story, the short-term movements in GDP, industrial production, retail spending that we're going to see will be sensational, uh, the likes of which we probably haven't seen before. Economists are jostling with each other at the moment to try to come up with the most sensational numbers. But in the United States economy, it's quite feasible that in the second quarter of the year, we might see GDP drop by a double digit amount. That's quite possible. The issue for us always in this, though, has been how long will this sort of damage last? And as I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure that the mood and government's appetite for taking these measures when the costs become clear will actually allow that uh, make that damage last for long and be focusing most closely on going forward that evolving mood and the likely duration of the damage which undoubtedly in the short term is being done. By the way, at the corporate level too, it's not just going to be the economic numbers that take a hit. Corporate profits are going to be hit very hard indeed in the second quarter and what's left of the of the first. But again, the issue is how long will that damage last, not whether there will or won't be any damage done. Final point, looking on the more positive side perhaps, one of the things that hasn't happened yet 
is that inflation expectations haven't begun to pick up. Because if inflation expectations were to rise, then one of the few safe havens out there, which would be cash, government bonds, would be undermined accordingly. But so far, at least, that hasn't happened, which is encouraging, because what governments are trying to do is to sustain demand in the economy, even as they're cutting supply. And that could be a recipe for more inflation. But as I say, so far, at least, that's not the way that the markets are reading things. Instead, we're focusing more on the decline in oil prices and what that will do to reduce inflation in the short term, rather than anything more dramatic. So that's a quick wrap for me, uh, Helen. My personal perspective, the mood in the markets is more understandable than I'd have thought it would have been a couple of weeks back. I didn't anticipate governments being as draconian as they are in terms of what they're doing to economies. But still, the question I have to ask myself as a long-term advisor is, has the global corporate sector really lost one-third of its long-term value here? And my suspicion is that the markets even though more understandably than I might have guessed, I still feel that they're overreacting. And at some stage, I would expect uh, this to unearth quite a few long-term opportunities in markets. Why do you think gold isn't doing better? I mean, it's certainly a question I've had from a few clients over the last week. Nobody knows for sure. You can't. You can only sort of look at the circumstances and imagine. But I think perhaps because of that inflation component that I mentioned, inflation is mm. not a big part yeah. of this crisis. And the banking system also, so far at least, touch wood, the banking system is not really being questioned in the way that it could be. And traditionally, gold does best when inflation expectations are rising, when the dollar is weak, not strong, and when banks are under threat. And that's not yet part of the current crisis. So perhaps that helps explain why gold hasn't been doing very well. Great. Hugo, you know, clients will almost certainly ask us, did we see this coming? Kevin's already said no, and I'm sure you'll have the same answer. But perhaps you could talk a little bit, please, about how we were positioned going into this downturn. Thank you, Helen. I, I think it will be helpful when we're thinking about this question to just recap what our broad strategy for our balanced portfolios is. So as we understand it, we have a dual mandate. And the first strand of the mandate is to grow assets ahead of inflation, plus a margin over the long run. But the second strand is to look to reduce the impact of major market drawdowns. And balance for us means that we're looking to find an optimal spot between those two objectives. So coming back to the question, we weren't preparing for this specific market coming from a sort of viral uh, pandemic, but we were preparing for a generic threat to equity markets from, from whatever cause and had modelled and stress tested a major correction. And so when, when we think about how we prepared within the portfolios, so using the diversifying assets, which we talked about a lot in the past, I guess the key question there is, is it working? Yes. So the diversifiers were put in place to, to offset some of the fall in markets, uh, particularly in the event of a major fall. And, and we never knew what the path of the correction might look like. And so when we put them in place, we had this multi-pronged approach, which we called uh, diversifying the diversifiers. So in terms of the impact that they're having now, well, so far they have offset just under a third of the fall in equities, though I would caution that the numbers are moving around a fair bit. And this is a bit ahead of what we previously modelled, and I mentioned in our previous um, podcasts and uh, calls. The biggest impact has come from the put options, but also from the Acura Fund, which is up more than 150% so far this year. 
Now, some funds and portfolios can't hold a Cura, and for these, we have a bigger weighting in the puts. And so the overall levels of protection have been similar so far across portfolios. Artemis is making good returns also, up around 60% this year. So Artemis needs sustained volatility, and this is what they're uh, getting. So it's been a good environment for them. The trend followers are flattish performance-wise, so no contribution from them yet. And, and this is really what we would have expected. However, as markets continue to struggle, they should begin to latch on to the trends that are forming, such as falling equity markets, and should start to make some money. So overall, the diverse bars are performing well, uh, and they're certainly helping to cushion the fall in the overall portfolio. Hugo, one of the things we often talk about in client meetings, and I think it would be really interesting for clients, is to talk about monetizing on the diversifying asset side. So if you could talk about what we've done or not done there, that would be, that would be really helpful. Yes. So uh, we've just begun to monetize. So we had a March put, which was getting very close to expiry. And so that has been sold. Our next put in terms of expiry is a June S&P put. We have sold one third of that. Uh, and we're really being opportunistic to see what kind of market um, levels we can, we can sell that out. So these things are very sensitive to any spikes in volatility. So we've been putting limit orders into the market to see if we can really pick off individual spikes in volatility. Broadly, though, we have been retaining the, uh, the protection so far. So we've just begun to uh, monetize, but we're, we're taking it uh, slowly. Which I think leads on nicely to sort of, you know, as markets have evolved and, as you say, from the, uh, from the diversifying perspective, we've largely held our protection intact. What's been in the approach to the return asset side of the portfolio, given that presumably as markets fall, you are seeing some potentially quite interesting opportunities? Yes, absolutely. So, so going back to the dual mandate, as markets have been falling, uh, we've been presented with the opportunity to buy stocks with much higher levels of anticipated forward returns. And so far, as I mentioned, the, the approach has been to incrementally add to existing holdings and largely leave the protection intact. So we've added around 5% to equities so far. And in terms of how the view has evolved, well, as Kevin said, we're in unprecedented times and we can see this from all the government actions. We will still be looking to take advantage of market dislocations, particularly where we're seeing forced sellers and uh, looking to buy stocks at very appealing prices. But we are, we are very mindful of how this is all playing out and we're being cautious. I mean, almost impossible question, Hugo, but what are you expecting going forward other than perhaps continued volatility? I think we can anticipate a great deal more volatility uh, until really we see infection and mortality rates begin to drop. So we really don't anticipate markets will return to normality anytime soon. So Hugo, I always ask you what you're more positive about. I actually think you usually say excited, but that doesn't feel like quite the right word at the moment. Kind of two-pronged question this time. What are you worried about and what are you seeing as more of an opportunity? Taking the worries first. I mean, we, we are naturally worried about the stocks which are in the front line in terms of economic impact, as such as Ryanair or Ashted, the equipment rental company. I mean, individually, they all have balance sheets that are much better than their peers. I mean, it's part of the reason why we were attracted to them in the first place. But they won't be able to survive an indefinite lockdown without recapitalization. Uh, and this could 
dilute existing shareholders. I mean, we really learned that lesson painfully from the global financial crisis 12 years ago. So we've extensively modeled these companies and we've been speaking to the companies as well to get an understanding of how they see their balance sheets and what actions they are taking to make themselves more robust. But these are threats that we are very much alive to and are monitoring. In terms of what we're more positive about, well, our core scenario is still that these same companies, i.e. the best of breed, will come out stronger and with enhanced market shares. And that could set them up for a decade of superb performance. And just moving back to the diversifiers, these markets will throw up some good opportunities for them. So on balance, we're probably seeing more opportunities at the moment than uh, threats. Thank you, Kevin and Hugo. Clearly unprecedented times. Whilst we will look to take advantage of dislocations, I think we're also very mindful that we don't know how all this pans out. We have the diversifying assets for this type of scenario and they are behaving as we would expect them to. We'll continue to communicate with you as much as possible. If you have any questions, please do ask your client advisor who will pose them to the team and get back to you. If we can assist you in any other way, please do use us as a sounding board. We're here to help. And in the meantime, I wish you and your families well and thank you for listening. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only, and any reliance on the information provided in it is done at your own risk. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the fairness or accuracy of it. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance.